So that's what just happened. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi. Nice to meet Abram. (laughs) Abram, meet Becky. Hi, Abram. (laughs) Nice to meet you, Becky. I'm familiar with your voice because I've been listening to your podcast. (laughs) Oh, oh boy. So this should be good. You you already know what to expect. Yeah. All right. Let's let's play some music. (laughs) All right. Let's go. Uh, welcome to the Radical Bureaucrat. Oh. Sorry, I'm going to have to do that again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> One take podcast. All right. Do you want to do the music again? No, it's one take. A, a podcast for one people take. who want to change institutions from the inside. Today is Thank Thursday. You. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, it's okay, Sam. Don't worry about it. I should have done it before. Yeah. Uh, today is Thursday, March 26th. We're very excited to have on our show Dr. Rebecca Tarlow, Assistant Professor of Education and Labor and Employment Relations at Penn State University. Dr. Tarlow's research is driven by this question. What role does education play in facilitating social change, both within formal school systems and in informal contexts? Over the last decade, Dr. Tarlau has done extensive ethnographic research on the Brazilian Landless Workers Movement, or MST. The MST is famous globally for its success in forcing the government to redistribute land to over 300,000 poor rural families. Her recently released book, Occupying Schools, Occupying Land, How How the Landless Workers Movement Transformed Brazilian Education, explores the movement's attempt to transform public education across the country. The case of the MST's educational struggle illustrates that schools can become important institutions supporting struggles for larger social transformations, but only when a highly organized movement with a clear vision for education can garner consent among a variety of state and civil society actors. In addition, Dr. Tarlau is an organizer in her own right, and we want to talk to her about her recent involvement in the Center County COVID-19 Community Response, 4CR, a group. Uh, working to support those who are impacted financially by the coronavirus in her area of Pennsylvania. So she's a brilliant academic and organizer who specializes in how schools can support the struggle for social transformation. But here's the important thing. (laughs) She is a loving auntie to my kids and a loving sister-in-law to me and my wife. And I know this because she's married to my brother. So we're not going to call her Dr. Tarlau anymore. We're going to call her Becky. Welcome <laughs> to the podcast, Becky. Thanks, Sam. And yes, please, Becky. Becky is much better. <laughs> so, Becky, uh, how are you? How are you doing um, out there in Happy Valley State College, whatever you all call it out there in your part of Pennsylvania? We're doing okay. We're doing okay. Um, well, definitely feeling overworked. Um, at Penn State, we transitioned right after spring break into remote teaching, um, and that also meant that all the meetings that in, were supposed to happen that week continued to happen, but just remotely through Zoom. Uh, so just been spending 10 hours, 10 hours a day on Zoom every day and trying to support students and also balance that with all the organizing work we're trying to do. So hanging in there, but also feeling, knowing that we, that's that 
me and uh, my husband, your brother, Manuel, we're so lucky that we're on salary um, and actually can work from home. Right. So, yeah. So that's how we yeah. learn. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work? I'm, I'm, one thing I'm interested in is, is uh, are we continuing to work the same way that we worked before, just in a remote way? And, or are we working to keep ourselves occupied? Does it feel so? Does it feel like it's meaningful and necessary, or, um, or does it like how 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 meaningful is the work right now in terms of the the university work? Yeah, that's a good question, and I think you have to sort of separate that those two questions, like how meaningful versus how necessary. I think um, Penn State and most universities' approach to the pandemic has been to try to keep things as business as usual as possible which means to do synchronous remote teaching at the same time as students who are used to coming to class. And that means that even students who happen to be in California now, if you have an 8 a.m. class, you're still required to actually have that class at um, 8 a.m., even though some students are in the West Coast. And so obviously things aren't normal if students are having to wake up at 5 a.m. to take classes. Mm. Um, so, so I think it's a good question that we'll have to reflect on. Like, is the, this, this urge to keep uh, the structure of the university that was an in-resident structure is, and transforming that to a remote structure, like, is that the best way to go about remote teaching? Is that the best way for the university to function? I think we're still really reflecting on that. I know, um, like, for example, we had a job candidate a few uh, last week come and we were mm-hmm. encouraged like even for our what was going to be like our lunch meetings with her we were encouraged to have like lunch zoom conversations mm. uh, so there was this attempt to really replicate all of this in residence um, uh, structure within the remote setting but that means for students that if they have two or three classes a day they might be again in zoom for nine hours a day which mm. I don't think I don't think we understand yet how that is affecting students so we'll have to reflect on uh, on whether this is sustainable in the long term. Mm. Yeah, there was a, a tweet. I think both Sam and I um, caught it or retweeted it or whatever that that said no educator really thinks that a kid is going to be online. You know, <laughs> between between eight and three every day, Monday through Friday. Like that's just not real. Yeah, I think the challenges are even more in the K through 12 system. I mean, to have remote learning with like third graders, second graders, that's just a whole nother situation. Mm-hmm. Um, with me, I teach mostly graduate students. And so I have one class a semester and it's 10 doctoral students. And so we, 10 is actually, I think, a, a sort of an okay number to do via Zoom. So we've been having like these three hour class sessions. We had our second this week. And it's been going like pretty well. We've had similar um, formats for discussion and we break out into breakout rooms and then we come back together. And, but these are doctoral students who are like mm-hmm. highly dedicated. They're like reading their intellectuals. And so we're able to manage the, the format. Now for undergraduate students who are in a 150 person lecture, mm-hmm. I know that's been really challenging for a lot of my colleagues to figure out how you navigate that. Um, and how you do a, a synchronous course with that many students. Um, so that's so I think there's different challenges at different levels. And then K through 12 is a whole nother set of challenges. I thought Harvard and MIT solved all of this with edX. I thought we had done this already. Sorry, say that again? I said I thought Harvard and MIT had solved this already, that edX was going to change the world. With, 
Because of online learning. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're stuck. I mean, You're... I think I don't know if that's an important point to mention, but most online learning that happens is not synchronous. So, mm. like, Penn State has an entire world campus that's right. asynchronous, mm-hmm. um, which is like a whole different format, right? Yeah. Hey, sorry. Abram, you there? Yeah, no, I'm here. I was in agreement. Yeah, I'm. I was. Yeah. I said, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for some reason, with the sound on your end, we're we're having trouble hearing you a little bit. Uh oh. Um, so I don't know that. if it's the your your mic or what. Um, no, I don't know. So, all right. So, so our first question that we would normally ask is, what's an important challenge that you as an individual are facing right now? And it sounds like right now you're being very challenged just by this whole remote learning environment. Um, is, is, is there any, anything else you would add to that in terms of what's feeling challenging about this moment? I think this moment is there's such an urgency to, um, there's so much organizing work to, I know you're going to ask about this soon, but there's so much organizing work to get done. There's so many people who are losing their paychecks. There's so much need right now among different communities and so I think a big challenge is, like, how do you balance, like, all of that work we have to do to organize ourselves to be able to make a, to, to be able to help those in the most need and to help those in the most need help themselves? And how do you balance that with, uh, with, with job obligations? And also, I don't know if this is true with you, but suddenly, like, all my college friends and all these different people from different aspects of my life are, like, wanting to connect. Um, mm. and so there's actually this intense, like, social and family uh, obligation now as well, and so mm. there's like work is work is more intense, social family is more intense, and also this need for organizing is more intense. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's a challenge right now. Yeah, it sounds like it's really spreading you thin. Um, so tell us then about the work with uh, the center county center country. Is it center county or center country? Center County. Center County. Center County COVID-19 Community Response Group, or CR. So, so what is it? How did it come to be? Um, and uh, what, are you, what are you doing for it? Yeah, so it's been, it's been uh, really exciting over these past two weeks. So I have to just tell you a little about, like, Center County, where we are, which is in the middle of Pennsylvania. Um, it's a very rural area. People like to say that we're... Um, we're three hours from everywhere, but one hour from nowhere because we're sort of mm-hmm. right in the center of the state. And um, there's not as much what you could call sort of social movement infrastructure in this in this area as there would be like in New York City or the Bay Area, where there's lots of um, historical progressive organizations that are involved in community organizing. Um, so that's a little like lacking in Center County, and so. Um, so this is really exciting because um, what happened here is that a few people that I had been doing some community organizing around wage justice issues in the area and other things, we started talking, it was I think March 11th or 12th, the Thursday and Friday before everything really got crazy. Uh-huh. Um, and we started talking and saying, gosh, like we need to like call for a community response. We need to um, think about mutual aid, which is mm-hmm. the idea of solidarity between people, not just charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just said, okay, let's like, create an organization or like a name for a call to get people involved who want to like help each other. 
And mm-hmm. so we, we came up with this name, Center County COVID-19 Community Response, which is 4CR. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we created a Facebook, and then we created a Zoom link and put out a call Sunday at 1 p.m. Like, jump on this call if you're interested in figuring out how to help and how to plug in. And to our surprise on Sunday at 1 p.m., 53 people joined the Zoom call, um, mm. which was totally overwhelming um, and also mm. ex- exhilarating and exciting that mm-hmm. these people from like our community who might be like on our block or in our neighborhood who we didn't know, we're all jumping on the Zoom call <clears throat> because the link had been shared on like Nextdoor and all these different channels. Mm-hmm. And so through that first Zoom, we sort of had a conversation about how we wanted to respond and we created uh, four different working groups um, that were going to touch on different issues. So we had one working group that was specifically focused on Penn State and how to address the issues of faculty and staff and people sort of related to Penn State as the sort of central employer in this in this region. Um, and then we had a, a working group that was just called Resource Hub, which was trying to like, there's all these resources on different aspects of this crisis. Uh, let's get all that in one place on a website. Let's where the food resources are, where the resources are about testing, um, other government resources, let's have it all together. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had a working group on uh, government response. So how can we also be making demands on the state college, the state college bureau council um, and other government officials to respond to different demands that communities have. And then we also have an outreach group that's sort of about outreach beyond Penn State. So looking at um, uh, immigrant populations in the area and looking at like the more of the rural surroundings, like how can we do outreach uh, to them as well? And within that group, there's a lot of discussion about both a potential uh, moratorium on evictions, like past April 3rd, which was sort of the date that the Pennsylvania governor put put in place, but also thinking about a possible um, rent strike potentially, and also thinking about the idea of um, creating neighborhood pods where different neighborhoods are like, sort of form collectives that are in touch with each other and thinking about how to support each other. <laughs> so all that came out in that first wow. meeting. <laughs> um, and, and we had four working group meetings that week. And then the following Sunday, we had another mass meeting, uh, which had 35 people, which is mm-hmm. still um, pretty good. And we have a Slack channel that has 65 people on it and is constantly... Uh, active. Um, so, so it's a lot of really exciting stuff that's happening. Wow. That sounds so that, great. Yeah, that is, I mean, what do you, what do you take away from that? Like first I heard you say that you were surprised by how enthusiastic the response was. Like, what are you learning through this process already? I think, I think one thing I'm learning because I just moved here two years ago and I was in the Bay Area before. Yeah. And again, the Bay Area is probably the place with the most social movement progressive infrastructure in the country. Mm-hmm. I think what I, I, what, a lesson that I've been learning living in State College is that these moments of crisis actually bring people together in um, unfortunate but really exciting ways. So we, we had um, another incident last March, about exactly a year ago, where State right. College, this didn't get a lot of national press, but State College police murdered um, a black man who was 28 um, in, in our city, just a few blocks from where I live, actually. 
And that was, and it, he was murdered with a bunch of bullets in his back. They said that he was getting issued a mental health, um, uh, getting a mental health check, and like somehow he ended up dead. So it was a real, it was really awful. And that, and that crisis, the march we had the day after, like I was also shocked again because there were maybe 200, 250 people who came out mm-hmm. for that march. And then we had an organizing meeting the next day and there were 60 people at that meeting and they formed a coalition, the 320 coalition, because he died on March 20th. Uh, and that coalition has been organizing and it has been like such a, um, like an unusual positive thing to come out of this devastating act because for the past year we've been in community together and we've been trying to raise awareness about police violence and raise awareness about um, Osazi Osagi, who was the man that was murdered. Um, and so, and so, and then this happened where we had this another, again, again, another crisis, the pandemic mm-hmm. and the community galvanized and, and the majority of people, I thought I knew everyone in state college who was involved in like community organizing, but the majority of people on that zoom call I didn't know. And Mm -hmm. so it just goes to show you that actually there's a lot of people who like want to get involved and want to transform the world and engage in social change. And, and these moments sort of push people to, to take action um, in ways that if we can funnel it in, like if, if we can have some organization that's part of that urge, then we can make really great outcomes hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you and my brother are people who are so expert in organizing. I mean, you've both done it in multiple roles, and then you've, on top of that, like, studied it (laughs) um, at a very high level and written about it. And so you understand organizing so well. Um, So I feel like a little bit, I I feel like, I mean, it's an, an inspiring example, but I'm also thinking, gosh, they're so lucky to have you. Because, like you said, you need to create an organization. You need to create a structure, a pathway for people to get involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, And having that leadership, even if you're not, this is not leadership with you, you know, having direct leadership where you've been anointed or, or, you know, are in a clear position of having authority over others. But having somebody who has the initiative and the wherewithal to know how to organize people, uh, it seems so important. Yeah, like having the, people will do it if given the opportunity, but you have to create that structure for them. Yeah, having the yeah. practical authority that comes from your experience and your ability to kind of read and and you know unravel the tension or resolve conflicts, and also right be you know um, being uh, experienced enough to know that like you've got to create a channel for the community to speak for itself, not you know come in from a more of a positional place of saving or fixing or, you know, the sort of classic traps that come with, with, uh, you know, in a situation like this. Yeah. And just to, just to emphasize, this is definitely not just me and Manuel who are organizing this effort. Sure. Um, but, but I think something that was central to organizing this effort is that there was a core of us who had trust in each other, who had been organizing together for the previous year and a half. And a lot of that organizing, so when Manuel and I arrived in Center County, one of um, the main organizations that was doing 
like good work in the community and social justice work was the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. And so we started actually organizing through DSA. Um, and through that, we created like a center county wage justice coalition um, and did also stuff around like um, like education, around politics and, and different things. Um, but there was sort of an organizing core through that through that organizing that we began to trust each other and we'd been in political discussions together. And, and because and it was really that core of people um, who have been sort of central to the, these efforts now. Uh, and specifically, one of the people in that core is a woman, Mel Mitter, who is from Center County. Uh, she was born in State College. Uh, her mom is the owner of a, a, a cafe in town that's a very sort of like progressive cafe that's almost like an institution here in State College. And she put out the initial call. And I think because of uh, her, like the trust that so many different members of this community have in her, right. um, that's like one reason a lot of people, because me and Manuel just got here, you know, but right. because there are people in this core who are from State College and from the community, um, that was important. And I think what was really important too, and I think, I think Abram was speaking to this, is trying to create the organizational structures for people to take initiative to move in the direction they want to move. And not to not to try to control it, no. um, to to give it an organizational form that or an infrastructure that allows people to sort of do the work that they want to do. Yeah, you know what? On the I think the tie into this podcast, one thing I think about a lot is that we talk mostly about what can people do in their jobs, but what you're describing is people doing work for their communities outside of their nine to five, whatever it is they get paid for. And if we're really talking about social transformation, we need to look for those opportunities. Like the, there is an inside outside strategy there where you have to be both on the inside and the outside. You have to do what you can within the uh, parameters of your job, but you also, we need those of us who have, you know, the wherewithal and the privilege to have space in our lives to do something like that, to look for those opportunities. And I think, you know, in our field of education, that can be hard because it's an exhausting field and not a lot of people want to, are excited about getting involved and putting a lot of sweat hours into an initiative outside of the work of running the education system, but it seems necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And more so than anything, if you're if you're sitting within a higher education institution, a lot of people um, like think about their research and their teaching as like their form of social change. Right. But but that is like that is not that that's a contribution. But you also have to be there in the community and doing the organizing work, especially if you're studying social movements, you're studying activism, social movement strategy. And so I really try to think about um, like my contribution through my research, but also my contribution of just giving my time, which is limited, but trying to give as much of my time as possible to communities and to uh, groups that are struggling on the ground, not as an expert, not as a researcher, but as like an organizer with them uh, and an equal. And I think, I think it's hard in the higher education sphere to do that because it just doesn't count for anything for your job. Like if you go to a conference, it counts. 
if you go organize a Zoom call with 51 community members, that doesn't count. Um, but I think that's okay. Like, not everything has to count towards your job to be important and to still be worth doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think I, I, think I find um, one of the, you know, reasons people get involved uh, in these kind of, you know, after, after hours kind of additional work um, is because they draw a sense of c- community and humanness from it, from being able to, to work collectively with a group to affect positive change, to help others, you know, like that's kind of the, some of the, the most primal human instincts is to kind of like, you know, work together to, yeah. to take out the buffalo or whatever. Um, so, so I think the, um, as long as the space is creating that humanization and that, that kind of ethic of care or ethos of care to people, right. It's about care. Um, then yeah, people will, people will do some amazing things and affect some amazing change. I wanted to ask you, um, so one of the things we've chatted about, um, on uh, on on the podcast and 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 off of the podcast is the idea that uh, in this moment, you know, things are really uh, sh- shutting down in a way that we've never ever seen before. Nobody nobody has lived to tell tale of how they've been through something like this before, um, and that affords us an opportunity to redesign some things that have before seemed um, impossible. Um, you know. Uh, you know, remote learning is 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 kind of an example. We've been talking about doing remote learning and flipping the classroom for for years, for decades. That was sort of my dig at Harvard or whatever. Um, but now we have to, right? We've got to figure it out. We're going, you know, we're going all online, and it's happening all at once. And so we have the chance to rethink. Uh, and and kind of you were you were speaking to this earlier on the idea of you can't just replicate every in person human interaction digitally because that's incredibly annoying and wasteful and unnecessary uh but but like you know what are some ways that we should be um rethinking the role of our schools both both the you know the the younger k through 12 kind of space as well as the the higher ed space like how should we be rethinking what school is for and what purpose it serves and how we do it Well, that's a great, that's a great question. And it's, it's a, a big, it's, it's a, a big, big question, but you know, wherever you feel <laughs> an entry point, you know, it's a big question. And, um, just right before I answer or try to like touch and not answer, but touch on that question, if I could just go back real quick to something that, um, that Sam said about this inside outside strategy, mm-hmm. uh, and you all are running this show called radical bureaucrats. Um, and how can you change the change the institutions from within? Well, I, I really think that these types of community movements are like the thing radical bureaucrats should want the most, right? Because if you're trying to transform the institutions from within, if you have pressure on that from the outside, then it's so much easier. Like if you, you're saying, okay, let's let's integrate the school system, and you have like a 500 kids going on strike every Monday, or whatever's happening. Like that actually makes your argument in the inside of the institution a lot stronger. Um, so, so I just wanted to say that it's absolutely right, Sam. Like I think that inside-outside strategy is so important in thinking about institutional transformation. Mm. 
Um, in terms of like, what should the purpose of schools and universities be? I mean, this is a lot. This actually speaks to um, a, a little bit about my research because I do research in Brazil with the, one of the largest social movements in the world um, that has tried to transform school systems to promote the types of economic and political changes that that they want in the world. Um, and so I think I think for me that question always has to come first. Like, what kind of world do we want to live in? Mm-hmm. And then how can schools and universities support that world? And I think often in education reform movements um, and just in general in universities, we have these, these very narrow goals um, of student test scores uh, or like prep- preparation into the job market um, and other things. And we might even have some like minor goals about like civil society participation, but we don't, we never really think about like what is the big picture of like what we want in society, like how we want society to, to function. So for example, um, if we want like a more participatory democracy where common people have control over the decisions that affect their lives, mm-hmm. like we need to practice that and having school right. systems where young people aren't given any power over their school, that's not helping them practice participatory democracy. Uh, so maybe we, if that's one of our values we have, maybe we need to, from early on, have students have more and more control over their school system and how it functions and trust that they're going to make the right decisions if we want to trust that citizens have the ability to participate in the future, too. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's one example. If like the biggest, um, before the pandemic, if like the biggest crisis for humanity was climate change, like what are our goals around climate change? How can we structure every single aspect of the school system and the university to adhere to those goals? Mm-hmm. And how can we, if, if, if Black Lives Matter is like a value we hold, um, how can we not only have one week of Black Lives Matter in schools, but also rethink disciplinary policies based on an anti-racist framework um, in communication with people who are part of that movement. And so for me, like the movements and the values and goals and, and vision of society has to come first. And then when we try to apply that to schools and universities, like we're probably going to make mistakes, but those are such important spheres of practice to sort of practice those ideals that we want to promote in society. And so I think that's why you need sort of movements to come together and define those goals and then think about how you then transform the institutions. Hmm. Yeah, that strikes me as a profoundly different kind of uh, frame um, than the one that we have, which is more or less notes on the state of Virginia, right? Um, The the idea of... uh, you know the 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 educated the minimally educated voter landowner citizenry and the plucking up the refuse you know where possible in order to you know in order to fill gaps in middle management um, you know the design the design principle largely of our current systems are built around hierarchy and 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 some kind of principal authority at the at the top of a hierarchy uh, and competing principalities, you know, almost 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 exactly out of the city state playbook, right, of 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 Western Europe, but like competing feudal 
systems, right? Different academic institutions competing with each other over resources and prestige and uh, fancy named uh, storytellers. Um, it's a very different system you're talking about, one that's built first from the idea of what the people need, right? Uh, uh, and, you know, the Brazil example is, is one really, you know, I, I look forward to reading the book. It sounds like one that's really worth studying. Yeah. Yeah, and it comes back to this question that we keep grappling over in education, but at the same time, we never really, I feel like we keep circling around it, but we never, as systems, really have deep conversations about why are we here? Mm -hmm. What is the purpose of education? You know, it gets kind of boiled down to something very basic about, well, are we here to make better citizens or to prepare people for career? But but the, convers the, the conversation about that can be so much more intricate and uh, and then it needs to be applied to all of the different things that we are doing. And I think in the remote learning environment right now, it's just so clear that we're doing a lot of things because that's what we were doing before, um, as Becky was talking about earlier. And it's, you know, it's hard because we're busy, but we do need to take that, create that space for reflection and, and question ourselves. Like, why are we doing this? And what, What's our purpose here? Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's the question. Yeah. And, in, and in terms of possibilities in this moment, like, like the fact, I mean, there's so many possibilities, like the fact that standardized testing has been dropped in a lot of <laughs> states, like, like what was right. that? Was it that easy just to drop those te right. tests? Like, great. Like, let's never, let's never go back to that system again. Um, and I think the activism that was happening in, in New York City, um, where there was a question about whether the schools were being closed down, my understanding is that a lot of teacher activists um, who were part of the movement of rank and file educators really um, tried to uh, mobilize teachers to be part of a stick out and that they had 900 teachers on a Zoom call the Saturday before um, wow. schools, got, school got, schools got called off. And that and that's been happening across the country. So I do I do a lot of research now with teacher unions and teacher activism in the U.S. and also Brazil and Mexico. And so I was on a call on Sunday at 8 p.m., um, uh, which is with about 65 teachers from like teacher activists from different states across the country, and they were talking about the types of demands that they were mm -hmm. posing to their districts, like within the current crisis. So New York talked about their experience. Um, Chicago was talking about, like the Chicago Teachers Union was talking about how they were making demands around housing for homeless folks and homeless students. Um, uh, there were the, the the United Teachers of Los Angeles uh, were talking about how they were making demands for more um, public health provisions, not only for students but for all citizens. The president of the United Teachers of Los Angeles was part of. Um, supporting a housing occupation that happened just last week yeah, where right. a bunch of moms, moms occupied unused housing in Los Angeles. And so, so I think this is a moment where teachers and teacher activists, like, they, like the state of society is so connected to the schools. And so as they're making demands as teachers, they become demands about like the larger society. And that's, and that's really exciting that that stuff is happening across the country right now. And that yeah. there were 65 teachers on this call. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing call. Um, Becky, we are uh, over time. This has been okay. great. We really appreciate your time. But I want to um, ask you what we always ask our guests at the end of the call, which is 
what is something that's bringing you a sense of calm in the midst of this storm? (laughs) Well, I guess I'd say I'm mostly not calm because of the sense of urgency and because of Mm -hmm. this need to balance organizing and work and life. Um, But I do think one thing that brings me a sense of calm is that never again can anyone look down on on food industry workers, on Mm -hmm. cashiers, on Mm -hmm. service workers. Like only the most essential workers can work right now. And those are the folks in your grocery stores. And those are the folks like doing food delivery. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are folks you need to respect as much as doctors for the rest of their of the rest of your life, because because they're making our society function. Um, So I think that's one thing. And maybe another thing that's bringing me a sense of calm is just the knowledge that like, we have a history of social movement activism um, throughout the United States. And so we have feminist movements and anti-racism movements and climate justice movements. And those movements are now all thinking about like, COVID-19 and the pandemic and how to respond to it and how to use this as an opportunity moving forward. And so I have a deep sort of belief and trust in that collective organizing. And if all those folks are thinking about like how this moment can also bring opportunities, um, that brings me also a sense of calm, I think. That's, that sounds about right. Yeah. First Trump, now this. We're, we're, we have all this reason to, to coalesce. Um, well, thank you so much, Becky. Uh, we appreciate it. I love you. <laughs> love Coming you on too, the podcast. Sam. Thank you. Bye, y'all. Bye. Uh, all right, Abram. So let's end by like good radicals. What's one thing you learned today that you can use to create a more just and equitable world? Um, <clears throat> yeah, there's so many things. Um, I guess that's a common thing. Um, right. I think the um, I'm drawing a lot of um, calm in the midst of the storm from uh, the idea that there are so many um, attempts to reference. Right. And like none of them, you know, nothing that you do in one particular neighborhood is going to work exactly the same in a different neighborhood. But the fact that it's been done and worked on and is in progress somewhere else, I think is hugely comforting, you know, that you don't have to figure it all out from scratch. Although, you know, I guess we never really had to figure it all out from scratch, but, you know, there's a feeling sometimes that, like, you have to invent or or found whatever institution, and actually there's a lot of people who have done it, who have been doing it for the last year and a half, and, you know, you should maybe jump on their thing, uh, on their call, um, to participate um, before founding a new thing. Yeah. Yeah. On the, uh, the sunburst podcast that we have, we referenced on our first episode when we came back, um, uh, they talk about, uh, find your lane and get in it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so find, find where you can make your contribution and then go for it. And, uh, so there are, there are people out there who are creating lanes for us that we can, you know, mm-hmm. step in and, and uh, be a part of these movements. Right. Yeah. And I think the, 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 the takeaway for me 
that I do think we can talk more about on this podcast is this notion that uh, of the inside-outside strategy, which doesn't just mean while you are inside an institution, you should work with people on the outside. But in fact, if you deeply believe in social justice, we've got to be in both places. I mean, there are people who cannot, right? There are people whose whose jobs are 12-hour days. There are people who work two jobs. There, there are reasons why right. people do not have enough bandwidth to both volunteer their time as organizers and do their regular work. Right. So for those of us who do have those values and who do have the space and create the space in their lives, uh, which, by the way, I didn't think I did until a friend of mine pushed me pretty hard in that direction. Um, so sometimes we think we don't have the bandwidth, mm. but we do. Uh, but if we if we believe in these things and we be, and and in our our nine to five we're espousing certain values about social justice, we've got to live those values for our community outside of of work. And uh, I really admire the way that both Becky and and my brother, who I could tell you so many stories about every community that he's lived in, he's he seems to find a way to get in very quickly and start to organize and advocate for the people who need the most help there. And he just uses his privilege so naturally to do that. So um, it's a great model and for me, um, and I think it's something all of us who aspire to be radical bureaucrats uh, can think about. Good stuff. All right. Well, help us out, folks. Um, we are, once again, calling out for you to uh, help us out by adding uh, links, show notes, uh, comments, questions, show ideas uh, on Twitter, uh, at Rad Bureau, uh, at R-A-D-B-U-R-E-A-U. I always have to kind of try to remember if I'm spelling it right. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, maybe we've been misspelling it all along. Yeah, maybe. Um, let's also end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are our personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone, and was mostly just made because we wanted the opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>